Welcome to Caregiving Club On Air. This podcast is dedicated to the millions of family caregivers who want wellness tips and self-care solutions, who seek expert advice, and who want news about healthy aging and how to create well home design in our forever homes. I'm Sherry Snelling, a corporate gerontologist, author, and educator, a TV interviewer, host, and news commentator. I'm joining you from Southern California, where our interviews and news take us all across the country to explore the many ways to help you on your caregiving journey and to lift you up here at Caregiving Club On Air. Welcome to Caregiving Club On Air and our November episode on National Family Caregiver Month, National Family Stories Month, And on November 1st, National Authors Day. I'm your host, Sherry Snelling. And as I said, happy fall, y'all. And we are celebrating this November our family caregivers across the country with National Family Caregiver Month. Very exciting. And also National Family Stories Month, which we all have a story to tell. And that leads me into our National Authors Day. We have a really terrific, super exciting to have this guest on, Elizabeth Winthrop Alsup who is a noted writer of fiction, but she just came out with a new book that is actually a more of a memoir about her family, who is a very illustrious family that you'll find out about, but also her caregiving for her mother. And through her caregiving later in life for her mom, she actually found out that both her mother and her father had been spies during World War II. This is a fascinating story, and I think you're going to really love our interview with Elizabeth coming right up. We're also going to celebrate caregiver wellness news by diving into some of the latest things that are going on in the workplace with employers and employee benefits around caregiving. And we're going to touch upon virtual travel as well as holiday travel for our older loved ones this holiday season and give you some tips and resources on how to manage through that through these holidays, because I know travels become a lot tougher for many of us. And we're going to touch on pop culture, where we're going to give you our list, our favorite caregiver stories and memoirs that are out there. So that'll be for National Authors Day. And then in Well Home Design News, we're going to talk about those family stories. How do we maintain our loved one's stories and their legacies? We've got great resources and tips and different products and services out there to help you do that. And finally, we're going to wrap it all up with our Me Time Monday wellness hack. We're going to talk about the power of storytelling and how that not only increases our empathy, but also how it enhances our emotional health. So stay tuned for that. Let's now dive into our caregiver wellness news. So for our caregiver wellness news, first of all, as I said earlier, November is National Family Caregiver Month. And we just want to thank you out there who are listening to us, who are family caregivers right now. Thank you that have been family caregivers And also thank you to anybody listening who may become a family caregiver in the future, because we know that this is a role that so many of us are going to play throughout our lives. We are caring for someone pretty much throughout most of our lives. And also we are being cared for both the beginning and the end of our lives. So caring is really a constant. And we just want to thank all of you. There's 53 million Americans right now who are in a family caregiving situation and also one in six employees are caring for an older adult. So I want to focus first on some corporate wellness news and caregiving news. There was a recent report that came out from the Business Group on Health. It was a research study that was recently done. And they took a look at the kind of emotional mindset, um, the stress response and, and stressors that are impacting employees in the workplace. And they did this survey among thousands of employees, both in the U.S. and also in the U.K., in, in Britain. And one of the things that, not too surprising, 73% of, of caregivers who are employees as well, so they're juggling, obviously, you guys are juggling a lot of responsibilities with this new caregiving responsibility thrown in. So 73% said definitely feeling more stress. About 34% said feeling burnout, which we know is is typically tied a little bit more to our emotional health. It's kind of the sense of being overwhelmed or, you know, maybe even depression or levels of anxiety, but certainly all of those are stressors. 
and burnout is a part of that. Now, interestingly, one in three employees also said that they felt their employer cared about them and cared about their mental health and their well-being, but only a third. That leaves two-thirds who feel like their employers don't care. So I think if there are any HR people out there who are listening or employers, there certainly are still some gaps in terms of just the employee perceptions. May not always be accurate, but certainly the employees aren't necessarily saying that they're feeling the love from their employers. And along those lines, what was interesting in this report is that only 15% of the employees that were polled said that they're even aware of services or resources or any kind of help that their employer can give them not only as a caregiver, which we know so many employers now have really adopted a lot more benefits and, and you know, you can call and get some help with research and finding local services. A lot of employers have done that, particularly, I think, of the larger employers. You know, it's really tough on the small employers to really put those types of benefit packages in. But so often, and I, I know this because my family operates a, fam- a small family-owned business, it is family when you have that type of business. And there is a lot more flexibility. But when you get into some of these larger employers where it's really tough to have those kind of very, very personal relationships with, you know, if you've got 2,000 or 5,000 employees or whatever it is, but then they are certainly looking to give you the types of resources that can help you through your caregiving journey. But only 15% of employees are tapping into, first of all, or even know if these resources and benefits exist. And then only about 23% have used it. So that's a pretty low utilization rate, which is something we talk about a lot in the workplace. And I just want to say, if you're listening out there, if you feel like you need more help, certainly because of the research that takes so much time online and Then even when you find something, you're kind of questioning, is this really good? Is this the right fit for my loved one? Is it the best that I can do? Those are all of the answers that you can get through a lot of these these types of caregiving benefits now. So, So, you know, tap into your employer's benefits first, see what exists for you and whether or not you can get some help with that. So I thought that was an interesting study. I just wanted to bring that up because, again, so many of us are thinking about caregiving, whether we're, as I said, caregiving now or going to be caregiving in the future as we get together with families throughout the holidays. And, you know, we're starting to recognize maybe mom or dad, you know, aren't getting any younger. What what are the types of things that I might need to do to help them out? The other thing that's happening, of course, during this year is travel. Now, travel is tough, particularly I think this year. And, you know, given all of the costs of travel, giving the hassle of travel, I hate to say that, but, you know, the The travel industry has not really helped itself out, particularly all of these dreadful stories we hear about the airports, you know, where you're standing in line forever and then the flight gets canceled or delayed or, you know, whatever it is. And and I've even heard some horror stories where if your flight gets canceled and canceled again and canceled again, they're not even offering to put you up in hotels anymore. I know I had a really dreadful travel story. It was business travel last fall. And honestly, I still feel like I'm jittery about ever getting back into you know the airport and an airplane. I haven't really done a lot of traveling since. And then, of course, we've got, unfortunately, the spike in gas prices, which is really putting a damper on road trips, which would be maybe an alternative to the kind of airline travel that we've become accustomed to. But I want to give you a few tips on traveling with older adults through the holidays and and really just give you some great resources and then talk to you a little bit about an option to actual travel. So the first tips that I have are, first of all, Peter Greenberg. If you're not familiar with Peter Greenberg, he is the travel detective. That's his website. He, I actually know Peter from way back when. He used to be the travel editor at NBC on the Today Show. And I used to do some commentary on family caregiving on MSNBC. And often we would see each other in the green room or getting our makeup done or getting touched up or whatever and uh, and kind of have a chat. And I also had the pleasure of working with Peter on some different projects, you know, way back. This is way back, folks. This is back in like the 80s and the 90s. I'm going to age myself now. But anyway, Peter Greenberg is truly one of the best resources on travel. He has a podcast. He has, I think he's doing at least a weekly, maybe even a daily article and blog and column. He still does a lot of reports for morning shows and other shows, but he is on top of everything, where you can save, what to look out for, all of these different things about travel. So check out Peter Greenberg because he really is a great resource for you. Now, he doesn't always talk specifically about traveling with an older loved one. 
And that is where I'm going to point you to something called SATH, S-A-T-H, which is the Society for Accessible Travel. Okay, so that is the group that does focus on people who may have a disability or have mobility issues, maybe using a walker or a wheelchair. Maybe it's a loved one with dementia or Alzheimer's. Whatever the challenges might be in traveling with a loved one who has certain conditions or just, you know, happens to take a little bit longer, maybe walking through an airport might need that extra support, you know, getting one of the trolleys to take you or getting a wheelchair to wheel you through the airport so you don't have to walk. All of those things, SATH can really be a great resource. They've got checklists. I wrote about them in my first book, and I'm going to actually take that chapter about travel from my first book And I'm going to rework it and update it. And I'm going to put that on my blog for you. And we're going to have a link on our episode guide page about traveling with an older loved one. So the big watchword here, I think, is you have to plan ahead. It's not something you can do spontaneously, last minute. You really do have to plan ahead and call the airlines, call the airports, make some of these really special arrangements that do need to get done. But it's, it's possible. The only thing I would caution on is not only the cost of travel this season, which is way up. But also, again, that hassle. We do have to think about, we might be able to tough it out in the airport and standing in long lines, but we do need to think about our our older loved ones and the kind of stress that that may put on them. So then let me bring you to an alternative. So there's something really fascinating that's happened through COVID called um, virtual travel. And two of the sites that I really, really love, they're really my favorite sites, particularly because they focus on older adults. One is called Wowzitude. That's wow, W-O-W-Z-I-T-U-D-E. We're going to have their link on our episode guide page. The other one is called Discover Live. They are both doing tremendous work in this area of virtual travel. So let me explain that a little bit. It isn't wearing a virtual reality headset or anything like that. You actually just need an internet connection and you're sitting in the comfort of your own home, but you're tapping into a live tour. So for instance, let's just say you want to go to Paris and you want to check out the Louvre and you know walk down the Champs-Élysées or whatever it is. Well, they will create these tours and you can sign up for when, you know, the tours are happening in different cities around the world. And it's a live tour guide. So this live tour guide has, I think they use GoPro cameras like on their heads. And they also have, of course, their smartphones, but they literally are showing you like what you're looking at in the Louvre. They're giving the, the same overview that any live tour guide would give. And at the same time, you are also live with other people around the world. So there will be other people in your tour and you can all kind of, you know, chat together and ask questions of the tour guide. And what they're really doing now is they're sending like menus to think about, you know, to get you in the mood for French food or, you know, other things. Um, Some of the other things they're doing that I thought were really clever is they're doing wine tastings, like with wineries in Napa, and they'll send you or your loved one the wines ahead of time. So you can actually... As you go through it with the sommelier, you can taste your wine. They're also doing whiskey tastings with a a master whiskey brewer in Scotland. They're doing heritage tours. So whether it's your Irish heritage, or for me, it would be British or Scottish heritage or Danish heritage or Jewish heritage or, you know, Indian heritage, whatever it is, they are setting up these heritage tours, which are really important, I think, for a lot of our Our older adults, we get really interested in our ancestry and our genealogy. And then the other thing that's really cool is you can have your grandkids, so your kids, hook up with your parents and have grandkids and grandchildren travel together and have fun and tell stories. I just think this is a phenomenal, this is one of the things where I love technology. So often you'll hear me be a little bit of a curmudgeon about technology, but this is one of those great benefits of technology. And so check those two things out. We'll we'll have both of those services on our website episode guide page. And I think that's a great alternative. It also makes for a great holiday gift, by the way. And we're going to be talking about holiday gift guide in a couple of episodes, but I'll give you, that's a, a little preview on something that we would recommend. So going into pop culture, which we haven't done in a while, as I mentioned, November 1st is National Authors Day. And, you know, we have our book lovers selections in a lot of different categories, particularly in the wellness categories of physical, emotional, social, 
financial, intellectual, spiritual. What did I miss? I missed something. Environmental. We have all types of books that we've kind of curated for you to check out, but I'm going to focus on And we're going to have this list up on our episode guide page of just the family story. So it's just going to be those books that have been written by people who have been family caregivers, their personal journeys. We're going to have some of the celebrity highlights up there. So for instance, you know, Patty Davis, whose mom was Nancy Reagan. And of course, her dad was former president Ronald Reagan. She writes about being a caregiver of her dad who had Alzheimer's and it's called Floating in the Deep End. We also have Kimberly Williams Paisley, who wrote a beautiful memoir a few years ago before her mom passed away from um, aphasia, which is a form of dementia. And in fact, aphasia is what Bruce Willis was recently diagnosed with. That's a beautiful book. And in fact, I interviewed Kimberly for her book when it came out. So I'll have that article in my interview with her also as a link on the episode guide base. But we've got a whole list that you can check out. And sometimes if you have a little extra time and you just need to kind of hear somebody else's story to know that you're not alone. We're going to have that list for you as well. That's our pop culture. And of course, as we're talking about family caregiving, we're talking about National Family Stories Month. I am so thrilled to have our guest on today, who is Elizabeth Winthrop Alsup. Now, I'm not going to give you all of the details because Elizabeth shares so much with us, but her story is so intriguing. And of course, her book, Daughter of Spies, which just came out, It just hit the bookshelves, I think, just a week ago or so, is really phenomenal because not only does it take you through the journey of caring for her mother later in life, and her mother had been an alcoholic, so there's some challenges there she talks about. She also talks about being the only daughter with five brothers who were in different places around the country, and of course, the caregiving fell on her shoulders, but how she brought her siblings together to create a care team, which I really love that piece of her story. But she talks about uncovering this family story and this family history she never knew and her brothers didn't know. And it was the fact that both of her parents during World War II had been spies. Oh, I love that because I I love spy stuff anyway. So you're really going to enjoy this interview with Elizabeth. She's just a delight and also so, so wonderful and sharing so much. And you know, obviously she's a really noted author. So I was super excited when she said yes to do this interview. So here it is, my interview with Elizabeth Winthrop Alsup on her new book, A Daughter of Spies. So I am really, really thrilled to have our guest today, who is Elizabeth Winthrop Alsup, who is a noted author. She's written over 60 books, but this latest book is really personal. And just to give you a really quick snapshot before we dive into talking to Elizabeth, she comes from a very illustrious family. So she has ancestry going all the way back to the Revolutionary War in New England. And on the other side of her family, she is also has a British mother. And you've got connections to two presidents, both Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin D. Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt were all cousins. But what's really interesting, Elizabeth, about the book is you really dive into something you didn't really maybe know as much about when you were growing up. Mm-hmm. But there was a little bit of a mystery, if you will. For both of your parents during World War II. So, you know, the book is, of course, called A Daughter of Spies. And by the way, I'm going to hold it up just so everybody can see. This is just a wonderful cover of your parents. But tell us about what you learned and how you talk about being a daughter of spies. Well, it was interesting because my father was a famous journalist, Stuart Alsop. And so we grew up knowing everything about his family. We, My grandmother lived in Connecticut. I spent summers with her. My mother was very quiet. She never talked about her past. We knew that she had grown up in Gibraltar. We knew that she was British. She had that accent. And we met her mother. My grandmother would come to visit. But there was never any background. And my father jumped behind enemy lines into France. He parachuted into France. And he had to liaison with the resistance. So... Those were stories we also heard to some degree, although he kept them very positive and they were not all positive stories. I only learned those later. My mother, finally, I began to ask her, what was your childhood like? What did you do during the war? Weren't you in London? You know, and finally she opened up. And that's when I discovered that she was a decoding agent for MI5 at the age of 17. 
She had to sign the Official oh. Secrets Act. She had to pretend that she worked at the passport office. She never told my father what she, what she was really doing. And he never, he could not tell her where he was jumping, although she presumed because it was right after D-Day. So they had these secrets that they had to keep. And my mother kept them through her whole marriage, you know, almost until I began to finally poke at her and ask the questions. So it was interesting. I love the fact that you take us back to those days. And and one of the things I loved in the book is you talk about kind of the romanticism of really discovering your parents as these two very young people in love Mm -hmm. in, in the midst of this, you know, horrendous war. I always kind of laugh because we talk about resiliency and the younger generation these days. And yet the stories about your mom getting on the cargo ship to come over here. I think we have no idea what resiliency is. None. And I remember <laughs> going to see her right after 9-11. And I said, you know, mummy, 3,000 people died in the towers. And she said, yeah, I know it's terrible. That happened on a daily basis in the East End of London. You know, she just gave me that little reminder of the history that she had lived through. So, yeah. Right. Well, and then you write in the book, it really is interesting because you write obviously about your parents and their younger years and then your growing up years. And I know you're the only daughter and there's there's six children. So you've got five brothers, as you mentioned. But, you, you know, you talk about your father traveled a lot because he was doing great journalism from all over the world. Your mom, however, was struggling with alcohol. So growing up, there was kind of this emotional distance. How did kind of really rediscovering your mom's story and helping to tell her story. How did that help you to find that empathy for both of your parents, but particularly for your mom? That's a good question. It really did take me understanding on a kind of very visceral level what she had been through. So instead of a kind of intellectual, oh, my mother was a decoding agent, I would say to her, what was it like to be in the basement of the flat you lived in when they blew up the church across the street? And a lot of her for that, you know, she said, young people think they'll live forever, will think we're immortal. But I could see and feel the deeper emotions. My mother was very British, keep calm and carry on, you know, so you had to poke a little to get underneath and find what the real heart to heart was. And I suddenly woke up to what she had lived through. And as you brought up the cargo ship, she crossed the North Atlantic in December of 44 in a convoy, dodging U-boats, pregnant with my oldest brother, a woman in a room with seven other bunk beds. The other bunk beds were all occupied by other women, except for an eight-year-old boy who had German measles and gave it to my mother while she was pregnant. So that's a terrible, you know, situation. She was stuck on that ship for three weeks. So the things that she went through that she was very modest about and said, you just carry on, you know, there's no point fussing. That was one of her favorite lines. So, but as I dug deeper, I thought, boy, you know, I really feel how and also how alone she felt when she came here. She didn't know a soul. And the other soldiers loved to talk to her, the American soldiers, because she had been through it. The women here were very jealous because they'd been knitting socks, but they hadn't gone through the war the way she had. So it really opened up for me an understanding of why she had been such a distant mother. Yeah. Well, and I think that's so poignant too, because she really was in the middle of everything going on. And, you know, your parents became part of what they call the Georgetown set outside of Washington, D.C. And yet, as you said, a lot of those women, they really had no idea. No, no, they didn't. How to survive, you know, really, in a way, what I got a lot through your book was, you know, there was a lot of loss in your family and particularly for your mother. And she she managed, though, to survive it. Sometimes it was difficult. Do you feel like, you know, those are lessons that you learned as you look back? Maybe at the time you didn't realize, but that she was kind of giving that sense to you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, her only brother died in the war. Her only brother. 
And that was, he was killed the day my mother sat next to my father for the first time in a baronial castle in Yorkshire. And I like to, of course, being a novelist, I like to romantically think, well, Uncle Ian pushed Daddy in front of her on his way out, you know. She lost that. She lost her father, left her mother, had an affair with his secretary, abandoned her mother. So the whole family was blown apart by war. And over here, nobody, not it's not that nobody had those experiences, but not in their circle. She was unique. Plus, she was 18 when she arrived. My father was 30. I she know. said the first, practically the first night there, she sat next, sat next to Judge Felix Frankfurter at dinner. You know, <laughs> where do you start? Right. <laughs> so, at that age, having the gravitas, right, to do that. Yeah. And pregnant and always pregnant. Yeah. Well, you also write poignantly about caring for your mom. You lost your dad. He was relatively, really young. Very young. Yeah. You lost him to a rare form of leukemia. I can relate. I lost my my stepfather, oh. my dear stepfather, to acute myeloid leukemia. Same leukemia. Same one. Yeah, really tough. But he was young. And, and your mom, you know, was much older, of course, and lived longer. But she had dementia towards the end. And you were really the daughter. You were the good daughter that stepped in to be that family caregiver, even though you were long distance, right? Because you're in New York. Is that where we're talking to you? Yes, you're talking to me in New York City. I got down there, you know, every month. I was, you know, I was lucky because I had a wonderful group and staff of people to help. And I was in constant touch with them. And we had enough money for that, which was rare and lucky. What happened to me was that when my mother was, when I was a child and my mother was an alcoholic, I was, you know, I had a distant relationship with her. I was often scared of her. She was unreliable. So I didn't have that mother. Then, then she got sober. Very, three years after my father died. So I, in the middle time in my life, I had a mother. We came back together. We had certain times we apologized to one another. But then what happened was I began to lose her again to dementia. And what it did was it triggered for me all those childhood emotions of abandonment. She's leaving me again. I can't, you know, I can't believe it. So the getting her story gave me a wonderful way to connect to her. And when you're dealing with someone with dementia, as you probably know, they will not remember who came for lunch an hour ago. I would go into the kitchen to get the kettle for tea. She's British. We always had tea. I'd bring the kettle back and she'd say, oh, darling, how nice of you to come visit. She literally didn't remember. So what I learned was that when I read her letters from those eras, when I played her Vera Lynn music from World War II, when I showed her the movie Hope and Glory, it just elicited this rich vein of memories. And I took videos of her. I interviewed her on tape. And it, was, it gave us this wonderful time together. And even late in the dementia, when my brothers would call me and from the nursing home and say, what do I talk about? She can't follow a conversation. I'd say, put the video back on. And she would watch it. Sometimes she didn't know who was talking, but she would, she would be totally lost in it. So it was like giving her back her story. And I loved that. Really was a moving ending for us. Well, and I think we're so caught up in today and today's struggles and the news and what's going on. We forget that with people with dementia, so many of their memories are locked in that age frame between about 10 years old and 25 years old. So tapping into that is is so powerful. And and I love the fact that you, you, you know, you did the storytelling, which we always talk to family caregivers. It's great to know your background and your history. It gives also a sense of relevancy. I think so often as we age, we feel like we're not as much a part of the world. Exactly. But when we can share a little bit of that early wisdom that we went through. One of the things that really struck me in the book is you wrote a letter to her doctor, who at one point actually was really, you know, honoring you and saying you'd given your mom such a great quality of life. You kept her at home in her home as long as you possibly could with, with the dementia. And you really kind of pushed back on quality of life and you wrote this poignant letter in the book and I, you know, we don't need to go into it, but tell me what you learned about living longer. Your dad didn't live as long. Your mom yeah. did live longer. And then what is quality of life and how do you look at that now? 
Yes, that was really what troubled me about what the doctor said. And I had to really say to her, you know, one doctor said to me, your mother wakes up every day in the middle of a movie. I thought that was a brilliant description of dementia. You don't, you know, she doesn't know what started the movie. She, Where is she? What is she doing? So I really had a hard time with considering her quality of life as wonderful. That said, she was kept at home. We had wonderful Paraguayan caregivers who loved her. She spoke her childhood language. She grew up in Gibraltar. So she spoke Spanish a lot in Gibraltar to, to the maids. And so that came back. And she, it, it's just really hard to look at someone who's lost their way in a dementia and call it a good quality of life. It, it's hard to say that. She used to say to me she couldn't read anymore. There was something wrong with her eyes. There was nothing wrong. She couldn't remember the beginning of the sentence by the time she got to the end of the sentence. So it's just details like that that break your heart. But if you meet the person right where they are, you know, it helps. So when I would call her and she'd say, there's a red bird at the bird feeder. And I'd say, a cardinal, mommy. That's great. And she'd say, yes. And then she'd wait a minute and say, there's a cardinal at the bird feeder. You know, the repetition. But I I learned not to get frustrated. It took me a while. It lear- I learned, let's just be in this moment together, whatever it is for her. And that helped a lot. I also had her, which proved she could read. My father wrote letters home to his parents about her. She never saw those. But we had the collection of them, and I found them in the basement. And so I had her read those letters. And she just blossomed. She said, he really thought that about me? Wow. You know, I mean, he went, he waxed eloquent, and it wasn't his way. He was a very kind of reserved man. But in these letters, you could tell how madly in love he was. And that, that was just a gift I could give to her. It was just everything. What can I give her? today, you know, to make this day a better day. And I think that's so beautiful. And that really came through in the book. I think, you know, we know our parents only as older people typically. And so discovering them as young, you know, young people in love is really, really wonderful. Yeah. You know, you also experienced something that so many family caregivers go through, which is this feeling of guilt you know, for whatever reason, we always feel that we're not giving enough time. We're not doing this right or that right. You obviously did so much to keep your mom in her home, in those comforting, you know, place where she knew everything. But at the end, as we know, with Alzheimer's and dementia, it's so tough. And so you did have to move her into memory care. And you said you're you're still struggling with that. You know, it's, tell us a little bit about that guilt and what, what helped you cope with that guilt? Well, one of the things, you know, I had people who love her and loved me who would come in and say, you have to get her out of there. That's terrible. She's got to go home. Blah. And I that was not possible. I had to keep her there. I didn't have the support at home that she really needed by that time. I think it was the hardest thing was that I was not with her when she died. Mm-hmm. That was the biggest piece of guilt. And it was an arrogance because you know, it was like, I should be there. My brother was with her. She had someone next to her. So I I had to let go of that and say, it's okay. You have to let that one go. The best part for me was after it was all over, finding a speech that she had written to a hospice organization. She was very involved with hospice. And it turned out, as I wrote at the end of the book, I thought I was the storyteller. I thought my mother had not lived and examined life, I was completely wrong. Mm. She was an excellent storyteller, which I learned in the videos, but also in this speech. And she knew exactly what she had done, what was hard for her, how much the alcoholism had, had hurt people around her. And that almost lifted the guilt. It was like, okay, she we met in our own way at the end of her life. We we had right. a, a closure, so it helped. Well, and I think for so many of us, again, we find that guilt, you know, you didn't happen to be there right at the very end. 
you know, I would say to you to give yourself that grace because the minute you were there, then she would forget anyway. So, but you had all of this time with her. Yeah. Examining all these letters and going through her stories and videotaping that and everything, which is so lovely. You know, you, you also talk about, and I think this is very typical that as the only daughter, you know, the primary caregiving yeah. <laughs> fell on your shoulders. Um, and you say your brothers were certainly there and you were a tribe. I love how you described that you were a tribe, but was there ever any kind of frustration or resentment that everything was falling on you? I have to say that I said to them from the very beginning, I am the only daughter and I am physically the closest. I live closest to her. So boys, you're going to pay me. Good for you. I love that. <laughs> I thought that was a brilliant idea. And I said, you know, it'll all come out of the inheritance or whatever your savings are. But I said, I will be submitting bills and I'm not going to charge what a regular caregiver would charge, you know, whatever geriatric care manager. But I am going to charge $40 an hour. And that's going to be time I spend on everything, whether I'm home or with her or whatever. And they all said, absolutely. I, that's where the tribe was there. They, yeah. It relieved them. I also told them that that didn't mean they couldn't, they also had to visit. And I all, I said, listen, there's six of us and there's seven days in the week. I signed them each a day to make the phone call to mommy. And I said, Sunday, anybody can call. So it was helpful that I gave them very direct, you know, I would say, okay, Ian, Stuart was just here. You're coming next month. You know, I would, and they they responded to that. They said, "You, that's fine with us. You tell us what to do. I have a nickname, which is told in the book, which is Fuff, which is Elizabeth. I have a brother, Ian, who's just 13 months older, and he couldn't say Elizabeth, so he said Fuff. And one of my brothers joked, 1-800-ASK-FUFF. That was... <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, you are... You're the perfect best practice for any family caregivers listening out there. You did this beautifully. That's perfect planning. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think it helped that because my mother was an alcoholic, my father traveled and was quite distant. The tribe formed early in our lives. We leaned mm -hmm. on each other a lot. We kind of grew each other up, raised right. each other in a certain way. So that was in intact, that sense right. of tribal loyalty. Well, and with six children in the family, I think if I'm correct, you were either in high school or going into college when your youngest brother was born or he was only a couple years old, right? I was a freshman and I called home in that May of my freshman year because I had pierced my ears, which was illegal. And my mother, my mother wanted me to be 21. I had defied her. So I felt that I should apologize and tell her the truth. And my father said, well, you can't talk to her. She's in the hospital. I said, well, what's she doing in the hospital? And he said, oh, she's had a baby. I said, what? Well, I knew she was pregnant. And I said, oh, well, what kind of a baby? A boy. I said, oh, well, forget it. I'm not apologizing. <laughs> I already have <laughs> four right. of them. I That's was hoping right. for a girl. You know? <laughs> well, tell me, what through this process did you learn about yourself? What was fascinating to me was, although I had worked through therapy and I had been in 12-step programs for children of alcoholics and stuff, what happened to me when I got to her dementia was it triggered the childhood emotions that I had had when she was an alcoholic. And so I was shocked by the intensity of those emotions that, oh, here we go again. And a perfect example would be she would snap at one of the caregivers. And it was as if she had snapped at one of my younger brothers and I had to protect the caregiver the way I had protected him and when we were young. And that was interesting to me when I wrote the book, because the first part of the book, as you know, I'm telling their romantic war story, their romance, but I braid the narrative with pieces of talking about taking care of her. When it came to part two, and that was my childhood growing up with these parents, I had no braided narrative. And the reason was I did not want the focus or the sympathy to go to her. And that showed me the depth of my emotions around being abandoned as a child. When I get to part three, I go back to really talking about her. But it was like in that center section, don't distract the reader 
with stories about, oh, this is happening with her. She has a bed sore. I have to, no, no. I want this little girl to get full sort of stage. And that revealed more to me about myself than anything else. Right. Do you feel that just your childhood, your upbringing, and then also your, maybe your experience as caregiver, did that make you look at your own being, you know, becoming a mother differently? Did you say, I'm absolutely not going to do this? And, and then I, the other part of that question is I've said that myself sometimes, but then you wind up doing exactly what your mother did. You wind up, you find yourself doing those things that you said you would never do. (laughs) Yes. I would say that the biggest thing was I did do was I was physically really affectionate with my children because it was something my British mother just didn't and couldn't do. Mm -hmm. Hello, love, you know, is the most, she never said, I love you in the whole, even at the end. It was always, that was too much for her, too direct, too emotionally available. She never hugged me. She did not, she, it, physical affection was very hard for her. So I flipped that on its end and I definitely was physically affectionate with my children. But I would say, and it worries me, that I have her impatience. So I'm, I, exactly as you're saying, that's so intuitive that you have to really look at okay here I am I'm snapping because my husband doesn't get the tech thing I just taught him or you know whatever it is she was a very impatient and somewhat controlling woman and I'm trying hard to look at those pieces in myself and seeing where I can just begin to let things go Mm -hmm. one of the things that I think really also came through to me in reading the book is that we all have our ups and downs and, you know, different relationships with family and our parents and all that, but, you know, childhood could be so magical. And I love the stories of you and your brothers just being creative and experimenting and your brother, your oldest brother, Joe, Joseph, I think was the leader of some of these, you know, experiments and stuff, but it was like, it brought out to me how wonderful it is, of course, to have siblings and to have that carefree childhood. Yeah, I was grateful my mother was a devout Catholic. So she conceived 12 children. I did have a baby sister for three months who sadly died of sudden infant death. But there were they, we were a pack. And it really helped. My brother had a whole amazing factory or laboratory in the basement. And he became kind of my downstairs parent. You know, we would come home from school. She'd be locked in her bedroom. Okay, let's get out of here. And we'd go down and Joe would order us around and we'd bug people's rooms and, you know, run telephone lines through sewers. And I did crazy, crazy things, which I think too many helicopter parents don't allow their kids to do these days. But we, it was a counterbalance to the the murky quiet in the house, the secrets being kept in the house. And of course, if you have a father who's a journalist interviewing CIA people all day long or whatever, there's a lot of secrets, a lot of secret keeping. Well, and I think and in all of the famous people, obviously, you know, President John F. Kennedy and so many names, I think that so many of us remember or know were really integral in your family and we're coming and going through your your living room and all that. And I, and I want to really encourage people to read the book because it is a fascinating, it's a, it's a fascinating look at history. It's a fascinating look at, you know, growing up with parents who had these secrets and coping with caregiving and all that. I could talk to you for another hour, but I know we're kind of running out of time and I'm just, I'm so grateful that you gave us this time to tell us about your book. As a last question, what would you say is something that you've learned through particularly your experiences of caregiving for your mom? that you would share with our listeners? What, what, is, what would help them to cope and keep going? Okay, I would say that, you know, particularly with dementia, is take, try to get into their time. Try, try to just turn the world off. Don't worry that you're answering the same question three times. Love them through those times. It's extremely hard. And I did not live with her all the time. So I'm I'm incredibly sympathetic for people who do deal with it all day long. But there are so many ways I think you can get stories from people. Use music. Use letters. 
if you show events true interest in what they were doing, those, those stories seem to come out. They can return to that childhood. What did you do when you were 12, mom? You know, what high school did you go to? Did you go to the prom? All those kinds of questions. And also, in my case, I went to visit all the places my mother lived in. I was lucky in Gibraltar and in England. And I came back from Gibraltar with a book chock full of pictures. I put it by her bed, by her desk. She looked at that book three times a day. And just re-experienced it three times a day. So that, I think, is just be as creative as you can at eliciting the stories. Because it will take both of you away from the present day loss of memory. And, and it's amazing how many things still come out. Even at the very end, the boys would show her that video and she'd say, oh, Oh, I remember when the V1 rocket hit Green Park. We were standing on the terrace and your father was hiding under the bed. You know, <laughs> she was used to the bombs in London and he wasn't. He was a soldier. And I wore a black dress. I mean, things like just the tiniest detail will come out. A little detail, exactly. Yeah. And so many great stories. I, you know, I know one of my favorites is too was when you and your mom were thinking you were going to save somebody who was out at sea and you took a rowboat out to go, you know, kind of rescue this person and it wound up capsizing and the two of you had yeah. to kick kick your way back to shore. Yeah. And that was a beautiful story. I was pregnant <laughs> I with you my pregnant. daughter and I was feeling those contractions. I thought, oh, what have we done? But there but was no panic on either no. side. You say you just both just, okay, here's what we have to do, right? <laughs> and that's very much what my mother brought to the table. She was a very good person in a crisis because she'd been through so much. She yeah. just didn't let it get out of control. She would say, all right, we're going to solve this. And that was one of the best parts about her. So, Elizabeth, I always ask my guests to, how do you find your me time? What is the thing that you do that's just for yourself? Oh, wow. Just for myself. I happen to love dance. I don't dance myself, but I love modern dance. And the reason I love it is it's nonverbal. So I love going to, we live in New York because we love culture. So I go to the theater and stuff, but dance, my brain just floats away when I am watching that. And so for a real, what I call an artist date is to take myself alone to a, to a modern dance performance. I love that. Beautiful. Yeah, that is beautiful. Well, Elizabeth, again, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story. I'm going to hold the book up again. Tell us where our listeners can find your book called A Daughter of Spies. Yeah, it's called Daughter of Spies, Wartime Secrets, Family Lies. And you can get it at any independent bookstore. You might have to ask them to order it. It comes from Regal House, which is a terrific independent press. You can order it directly from their website. And of course, you know, all of the other options, bookshop.org has it, et cetera. So it's pretty widely available. Well, and I love, let's support those independent bookstores. We need to do that, right? Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I I'm very love that. For that. Well, Elizabeth, again, I just thank you so much for talking to us today, sharing your story. And I just encourage everybody to read this book. It's really uplifting. So thank you. Sherry, thank you for having me. It's been a great conversation. So wasn't that a great interview with Elizabeth? I mean, not only did we learn so much about just her caregiving journey and some of the challenges that she had, but also some of the ways that she was able to, you know, address those challenges. But I just found her story so fascinating and it was such a great book. I really recommend it to everybody. I know caregivers don't have a lot of time to read, but it's one that it's not too long. And I think that you'll just get a lot of insights from it. So, you know, while we're talking about, again, National Family Stories Month, I want to dive into our Well Home Design News, where we're going to talk a little bit about what are the things and ways that we can keep 
the not just the stories, which are important, but also the legacies of our loved ones going. And I wanted to share with you what I thought are three great services that are out there that really address kind of this, you know, capturing the stories, capturing the legacies of our older loved ones. So the first one is Life Bio. And, you know, you may be familiar with Life Bio because we actually interviewed Life Bio CEO Beth Saunders on our episode, our season one which was last year. So season one, episode two, Beth talked about not just what Life Bio does, and I'll tell you in a minute, but also she talked about the story of her dad being a Vietnam veteran and what that meant and the work she's done with veterans, but also this, the work that she's doing with those who are in the world of dementia and Alzheimer's and how if your loved one's diagnosed in its early stage, we can still capture those stories, capture those memories before they're lost. And so often, I think what happens to us is that when our loved ones become diagnosed, and, and particularly if the diagnosis is, is very devastating, like something like Alzheimer's or, you know, it's a terminal cancer or, you know, whatever it happens to be, maybe it's, you know, it's a heart attack and or a stroke and now it's difficult, you know, for them to, to speak. It's really important that we capture our family stories. Obviously, we want to do this before there's any illness or any crisis, but very often, Uh, We don't. And then something does happen. And then we're so focused now on their caregiving and their health needs. We kind of forget about the fact that our loved ones are still people. They still have dreams. They still have things to share. They still have stories to tell. And so if there's any way for us to also blend that into the physical care and emotional care we're giving to our loved ones. I think it's a really great gift that we give both to our loved ones who feel more relevant and feel like they're sharing their wisdom of life, but also for us to help us feel grounded in who we are and how we keep going. So with that, let me tell you a little bit about LifeBio. So there's an app that you can download. And what it does is it prompts you to use, you know, a smartphone but or a tablet. So it's a little larger. And then it has all these questions that take you through your life story. So it might be things like starting in childhood. Tell me about the street where you grew up. Who were your best friends? What did you used to do, you know, after school? Or how was school? Where did you go to school? So it's got all these great prompts. And it really takes into account people who um, are hearing impaired. There's visual and you can read the questions. And then, of course, you hit the record and your loved one will answer the question. And if your loved one um, perhaps has low vision or is struggling with eyesight or might even be blind, then it also has the audio where the question is done in audio so they can hear it. And then they hit the record button or have somebody help them with that. And then they can record their answer. And then what happens is LifeBio takes all of these great answers in your life story and you can answer, you know, you don't have to answer every Every single question because there's a lot of them in there. You can pick and choose the ones that you want, but it takes your life story and it uses artificial intelligence, all this great technology, and it kind of creates and crafts this beautiful narrative story based on the answers your loved one gave. And now you've got two things. First of all, you can archive their voice as a video file with Life Bio, and there is a subscription to keep that archive on file. But if you do wind up losing our loved ones, like so often we do, you now have this legacy gift where you have their voice and maybe one of their grandchildren was just born and didn't have the opportunity to know their grandparents. Well, they can listen to their voice and their story. I love that idea, but you can also have the story created into a beautiful bound book that they send you. So that book can then be purchased for other family members. Anyway, it's a really beautiful, again, great gift idea. We're going to have this on our holiday gift guide. So I'm giving away all our holiday gift guide ideas already. But think about Life Bio in terms of capturing your loved one's story. Now, the other thing I want to talk to you about is a service called Artifacts. Now, it's A-R-T-I-F. CTS. So they left out the A in facts, but artifacts. And it's a new startup company. But what they're doing is they're using a little bit more of kind of like a social media type platform where what you do is if you have something, let's just say it's a beautiful piece of um, China or For instance, my mom is a great collector of Lalique. She's got some absolutely beautiful pieces. Some I've given to her, some my brother's given to her, some she bought herself in Paris with my stepdad. But, um, you know, she could take a picture of some of her Lalique and then she could record 
her story about that particular piece or just the whole collection. And then that gets captured and then she can share the photo and the story and it can be either shared to her private community of people who might be in her group that she's created, or you can also share it publicly. If it's something, maybe you say, yeah, you know, I just want people to know about me. So they've got these options that you can do on the site. I think it's a really great idea because so often we don't know the stories behind some of these things and they get passed down through the generations. And then somebody says, well, well, what is this old teddy bear? Like, what does that mean? You know, or whatever it happens to be. So capturing those stories is really fun. And I think it's a great exercise for our older loved ones to tell us their stories, but also it's really fun for younger generations to learn a little bit more about their great aunt or their grandparent or whatever. And then lastly, there's something called Legacy Box. You may have seen some of the TV ads that are out there, but Legacy Box is really great because so often we find all these old photos. I even have, my mom and I have talked about this. We have boxes. We tend to keep a lot of stuff, but we have boxes and boxes of old photos. Some of the older relatives we don't even know anymore, but they just stay in a box, right? So what you can do is you can take your old photos, you can take even slides out of the old Kodak carousel from like the 19, what was that? 1960s, I think. You can take slides, you can take home movies, eight millimeter, and you can send it all to Legacy Box. And what they do is they convert everything for you. They can put it on a DVD or they can put it on a thumb drive or they can upload it to the cloud or whatever it is. But now all of a sudden it's captured and at least maybe you can take a look at trying to organize it or at least it'll be there. And I think this is also really great, by the way, because so often we've just had some recent national um, disasters and natural disasters, I should say, like Hurricane Ian. And so often we don't have time to grab those precious photos and they're lost and they're lost forever if we don't have them captured digitally. So with a lot of the older images and photos and films that we may have from childhood or parents' childhood or grandparents, um, it's a really great way to make sure that you have that archive for generations to come. So those are just three tips on you know, keeping the legacy and the life stories of our loved ones going. And now we're going to turn to our Me Time Monday wellness hack on the power of storytelling and also how it leads to empathy and better emotional health. Welcome to the Me Time Monday wellness hack. November is both National Family Caregiver Month and National Family Stories Month. It is a perfect time of year to talk to older parents and grandparents about their life stories and your family history. Telling stories is a powerful tool that connects us as humans. Hundreds of thousands of years ago, we painted images on cave walls to illustrate life's events. In many cultures, oral history was vital for generations to learn about their ancestors and to be able to pass the stories down to future generations. Most religious texts are a compilation of stories that guide us on how to believe and live our lives. From cave walls, we began printing icons and images that told the story of civilizations, such as the Sumerians, who used cylinder seals on clay documents in 3500 BC, and the Chinese, who printed the first known book in 858 AD. And in 1450, Gutenberg invented the first printing press to bring stories such as the Bible to the masses. Today, we use digital tools to read books and blogs, and we share video stories on YouTube and on TikTok. Family stories help connect us to who we are. We realize the challenges and choices we have in life have been met by those who came before us. For older generations, storytelling helps remind us of our resilience and our tender moments that have so much meaning in life. We appreciate passing these stories to younger generations so they can see their struggles may be their own, but previous generations have overcome and survived and so will they. Learning about a grandparent or parent's early life or the history of family helps build resilience and a sense of connection and continuity for younger generations. It also helps younger generations form their identity based on who and where they have come from. Studies have found children feel less depressed and can overcome bullying when they have a strong connection to grandparents and know their family's history. I know my passion for writing 
came from my grandmother, who was also a writer. And learning about our family stories helps create empathy. Sometimes we are so caught up in our daily lives, we forget to reflect and learn from our older generations and what matters to them. It gives our older loved ones a voice and satisfaction in knowing their stories will live on after they are gone. When it comes to empathy, there is a famous saying about walking a mile in someone else's shoes. The original quote is actually to walk a mile in his moccasins and is often contributed to various Indian tribes. But it actually comes from a poem written by Mary T. Lathrop in 1895. The original title of the poem was Judge Softly. Here is the end of the poem. Remember to walk a mile in his moccasins and remember the lessons of humanity taught to you by your elders. We will be known forever by the tracks we leave in other people's lives, our kindnesses and generosity. Take the time to walk a mile in his moccasins. Knowing family stories helps us find our way in life. It builds empathy, resiliency, and identity. Take the time this holiday season to talk to older family members about your family stories. We hope you enjoyed this Me Time Monday wellness hack. Each episode of our Caregiving Club on-air podcast feature a new Me Time Monday wellness hack. And check out more great wellness articles on our website and from my upcoming book, Me Time Monday, the weekly wellness edit for a wonderful life. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Caregiving Club on Air. Please listen to us on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts and other listening channels and check out all the resources and article links on our episode guide page at caregivingclub.com and just click the podcast tab at the top. You can also email us with questions and comments at podcast at caregivingclub.com. I'm Sherry Snelling and I wish you all to take care and stay well.